This is John Thunderwall. It's from the College of Music. He's a jazz performer, music educator, and a bodybuilder, and uh, a man who's pretty well rounded in balance. So I think we may talk to you a little bit about that. And I really appreciate his coming. And I've not heard his story either, so I'm going to be along with you and absorbing what his. Uh, First of all, a little bit about his professional autobiography, how he got started, and then I'll just let him speak on whatever he'd like to talk about. Thanks, Sean. I'm Sean Wallace. Uh, I'm professor of jazz saxophone at Ohio State here And uh, I started playing music really young. My dad was a musician. I grew up in the country. Um, and, uh, I was actually born in Columbus, but then my dad's job moved us to, uh, to pretty close to Lansing, Lansing, Michigan, which is you know, in the center of the state. And I grew up in Eaton Rapids, actually. It's a little farm, farming community. And, uh, I grew up on a dirt road at my parents' house. There's still a dirt road. I haven't paved the road. I was hoping I would unpave it sometime, but The eighty-acre cow pasture behind my parents' house, and uh, we had everything growing up: uh, four wheelers, go karts, uh, horses. I did all the uh, contesting stuff, four each, all of that. Um, from very young, uh, my dad instilled, uh, you know, physical fitness. Uh, we started doing, you know, push-ups and set-ups um, uh, before we went to bed. Really young, you know, I think I was nine or ten or something like that. Instilled that that discipline. Uh, probably stuck with me more than it did with my siblings. But all of us are very active. I have you know, a lot of things going on. As far as music goes, uh, the legend has it that uh, I picked up a trumpet when I was two years old and got a sound out of it. I don't know if it's true because I can't remember. Um, the earliest memory I had was of my mother cooking something in the kitchen. And I can remember this long hallway. Of course, the hallway was probably not very long because I was pretty young. So, you know, everything's exaggerated in a, in a child's perception. So it was this long hallway, and then I, there was a, must have been a cold air return, big grate and floor, and uh, walked straight forward, and my mother had an apron on, and I could see the light in the, through the glass of the oven in a window. That's my earliest memory. It wasn't about playing music. It was about eating. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, so anyhow, uh, I started playing saxophone when I was six. My dad was a musician. Um, when I really you know, showed that I, you know, I was taking this music thing seriously, uh, very young, I think that made him feel like he didn't, he no longer had to, to carry that torch. And uh, so he, he uh, I think his undergraduate degree was like in engineering, uh, industrial engineering, and then his master's degree was in business administration. But his, in his undergrad, his minor was music. He was a terrific musician, um, great saxophone player, played flute also, played enough piano to, to, to show me um, you know, um, you know, certain theoretical uh, principles, uh, ear training exercises. And he has a very specific idea of what, what it was that I should be working on. Um, so I started playing when I was six. I started playing on alto saxophone. Um, the saxophone was too big for me to carry. So he, and when I still have it, he uh, made this, uh, uh, this stand out of, wood. Um, I made the stand out of wood so that the stand would 
carry the weight of the instrument uh, so that I wouldn't have to. So he put the stand on a piano bench. You know, six years old, you're still pretty short. I was in 6'2 when I was six years old. So, so you know, uh, we're talking, and you know, I was probably about this tall, something like that. And so, you know, a piano bench was almost the same size height as a chair. It was a stand he put on top of this chair. And um, I had a neck strap on, but it was really more for show. I uh, wasn't doing anything. And so, you know, first at first I practiced 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long I could handle it. Uh, probably started playing too early because I developed a, a super severe overbite and uh, I had to get braces. Um, but, you know, I was possessed by it. Uh, I didn't practice because um, I was forced to practice or because someone made me practice. Uh, I can't take credit for it, I don't know why. I just always wanted to play music. That's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, I'm six years old, when people ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to be a world-class musician. That was the only thing I, I wanted to do. Um, I know that's not normal. It's a, that's pretty strange. And, uh, and actually, because of that, at an early age, having that kind of passion for music and that kind of love for it, um, when I started teaching students, uh, you know, I took some students on when I was 13 or 14 or something when I started uh, teaching students, uh, when they didn't display the same kind of love for it and they didn't practice, they didn't do what I asked them to do, that convinced me that teaching was not what I wanted to do. I, you know, I hate teaching. Teaching sucks. It's terrible. <laughs> Students don't do what you tell them to do. I say, I, I, I just didn't understand. I was like, this is music is the only, this is the greatest thing in the world. How can you disrespect it like this by not practice? Didn't make any sense to me. I really didn't understand it. Uh, in retrospect, it, uh, it's uh, um, you know, I went when I got about I want to say twenty is when I discovered that, you know what? Nobody that really loves some, something or that is a really good teacher likes it when their students don't study or when they don't do what you tell them to do. Nobody likes that. So I can hate that or not like that and still love to teach, right? So uh, that's actually when I discovered uh, that my motivation was to teach. That's you know. So even if I wasn't a musician, I'd still be teaching something, and I do teach other things. Um, um, my wife thinks I teach too much, <laughs> so uh, that's code for uh, I have an ex explanation for everything. Um, so uh, I've. Uh, put my first recording out when I was 14. I started playing professionally when I was nine. Um, I was on a television program when I was nine, uh, cable access program in Detroit. Um, and uh, um, first recording out when I was 14. I started writing music when I was seven. And uh, I mean, I have eight recordings out now. I'm 35 now. Um, I started, uh, I, I did my undergrad and master's degree at Western Michigan University. Uh, I finished in 2001, uh, came to the faculty of Ohio State in 2004. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, I, you know, I went up for tenure this, this school year. Uh, I have eight CDs out, I've got a website. Got videos all over the all over the web, and uh, uh, you know they play my CD on the radio, you know, uh, and they have for some time. I was on uh, let's see, Phil Donahue, the Phil Donahue program was the first national spot I had when I was 19, and after that, uh, Jazz Central on the ET, I did that. I had a couple programs I did on there. Uh, let's see here, CBS Sunday Morning did a 
did a 15 minute feature uh, on my life in music. It was about 15 minutes. And they followed me around school, and I was going to college at the time. They followed me around school, they followed me around to a bunch of gigs and things that I had. Um, something I went to in Chicago, something I did in Detroit. And uh, uh, they also covered uh, certain uh, spiritual aspects of my life, also. Uh, I'm, uh, although, I mean, I grew up in church. You know, uh, uh, as far as music goes, I didn't really start playing music in churches until, uh, let's see here, I must have been, I think I was in college at that point. And that's become a really important outlet musically for me. Um, um, musical direction in churches, I, I write music, I, I try to, you know, it's my way to try to give back. Try to be involved as, with as many things as I can in the community, uh, and that's another way to, to try to give back. Uh, I did a program here. Uh, let's see, uh, May of two uh, thousand nine, uh, called Music Through Motion. Uh, my wife is a dancer, a choreographer, and um, she was the artistic director. I was the musical director for this, and we brought together uh, community artists and. and uh, University artists, uh, and it was a program in Weigel Hall Auditorium. It was very well attended, and 50% of the proceeds were donated to the Mid Ohio Food Bank. So those are, you know, those kinds of things are, are important, uh, important for me. Um, when I was six, let's see here, when I went to kindergarten. Okay, it must have been, no. okay, when I was in first grade, that's how that goes. When I was in first grade, I was playing in the sixth grade band. When I was in second grade, I was in the eighth grade band. First year, eighth grade band. When I was in third grade, I played in the high school band. And uh, uh, they didn't restart the jazz program or start the jazz program. I was in, in seventh grade. Um, my older brother played trumpet also, so uh, the way the school district was, was that the middle school was right beside the high school, and then actually right across the street from the middle school was one of the grade schools. So I transferred to that school, Southeastern uh, Elementary uh, School, so that uh, I could walk across the street to go to the middle school for band. Um, uh, I was consumed by music. I was so consumed by it that uh, my, my father and my, my parents, they would hide the saxophone away from me. So I would go do something else. You know? uh, one of my favorite hobbies, especially during the summer, but it wasn't really a hobby, I guess, was I would get up in a tree, and I mean, we had this beautiful, you know, beautiful yard and everything. It was two acres of grass, and then the cow pasture behind there. That you know, 80 acres of that. Um, and I would get in the tree, and I'd get my saxophone up in the tree, and I would play a melody to describe the treetops. You know, um, I, I just. I just wanted to play all the time. I was practicing, you know, four or five hours a day, three or four hours a day, stuff like that, you know, when I was really young. Um, and then my schedule, you know, my social calendar started getting a little more busy, uh, you know. Uh, so I didn't practice as many hours, uh, but it was still very intense practicing. And uh, my dad, uh, you know, since he was a good musician, he was able to steer me in the right direction and give me the right kind of guidance. And uh, I mean, and to the extent that I listened to him, I developed very quickly. So that's pretty much the story. And like I said, I mean, I can't 
I can't take credit for um, for why I knew I wanted to be a musician or why that was so important or why I was even willing to spend that amount of time practicing or why I would in the middle of the night wake up with a melody in my head that I had to write down. I don't, I can't take any credit for that. Um, I, you can't work that, you know, I can't work, you know, work into that. But what I could do was with what I had been given, make sure that I certainly didn't squander it. And, um, and so my life has really been about a few things. And some of the things that I talk to my students all the time about uh, are some of these words I'm going to write down on the board. So in, in our society, we have different thoughts of what some of these words mean. But this is a word that's used a lot but doesn't seem to mean very much. Let's see what the dictionary definition says. Uh, so love, a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. A feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection as for a parent, child, or a friend. I'm just gonna read what it says, and some of this stuff is a little lewd. Sexual passion or desire. Uh, a person toward whom love is felt, beloved person, sweetheart. A love affair, an intensely amorous incident. Uh, sexual in intercourse or copulation. That's love. Uh, affection and concern for the well-being of others. Strong predilection, enthusiasm, or liking for anything. The, the object or thing so liked. That's what it says love is. Let's contrast that with what, what it says this word means. Let's see if there's any real discernible difference here. To find pleasant or, attra or attractive, enjoy. To want to have, to feel about regard. To be pleasing to. To have an inclination or a preference. To be pleased. Something that is liked, a preference. Okay, those almost sound like the same thing. One thing that I didn't see within that definition within either one of those definitions was this word. I didn't see that word in there. It didn't seem, when we were talking about love, it didn't say anything about commitment. It, I didn't see anything about...
Because that's what it takes if you really love something. Those are the things that it really takes. Those are the things that it really takes. This right here is just the flavor of the month. You know, as the good book says, it rains on the righteous and on the unrighteous. The, the way to figure out what group you belong to is what you do when it rains. The rules the rules are, are there so that when things get tough, you know what to do. That's why the rules are there. Rules are not there so when it, for when it's easy. See, when it's easy, anybody can do, can work hard. When you feel like it, anybody can do, can do it. Anybody. It doesn't take anything for that. And it's not worth anything. My life has been about really learning what that means. Really learning what that means. You know, uh, I ask my students all the time, I say, hey, you know, you know, I, I get them, especially new students, I always get them to do this. How, you know, how many of you really love music? You know, you know, everybody shoots their hand up. Oh, I love music. I love music. You know, they they do this. It's the fastest thing ever. Oh yes, I, I love music. And then I say, well, the way that you can tell how much you love something is what you're willing to sacrifice for. That's how you can tell. It's what you're willing to sacrifice for. If you're not willing to give up anything for it, then you don't love it. And so then maybe we should use different words when we're describing things that we're supposedly pursuing. Maybe we should say, I like it. Music makes me feel good. To the extent that it makes me feel good, I'll do it. I like it. It's okay. To the extent that, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the things you guys are interested in? Somebody volunteers some stuff. Are any dancers in here? What, what, what other disciplines we have? Painting. Painting. Photography. Photography. Art history. Okay. All right. Sculpture. All right. So to, to the extent that you love those things, you will sacrifice for those things. Now let me let me warn you about something, and this is something I had to learn this the hard way. I had to learn this the hard way. This is my second marriage. Okay? And I know most people they try to keep their personal stuff out. But look, for an artist, that is crucial to pick the right kind of person. Because if the person that you pick doesn't agree on this stuff, what that means, and is not supportive and can't help you to be committed to what it is that you say you love, and is jealous because you spend time cultivating that thing, you know, um, you know, I think of all the things that I, all of the music I could have written and all of the things I could have done if I hadn't wasted that amount of my life and that amount of energy that it took to deal with that situation, you know? And uh, that's probably, you know, so learning about sacrifice and learning about commitment and learning about perseverance, you know, I, I, I always tell you know, my students, I say, hey, you know, the way that you you spell world-class musician is W-O-R-K. That's how you spell it. You know? Because it's rough. I mean, and I'm not doing anybody any favors, you know, by allowing some 
average, you know, level of perseverance get by me. You know, so you better ramp that up, or somebody's going to eat you. I mean, look, you go out to New York, you go somewhere where there's a real art scene. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, Columbus is is great because it's got Ohio State, and there's some beautiful things that happen in Columbus. But as far as cutting edge arts, Columbus is not like, you know, the Mecca or something, you know, and. Uh, but you get around some some people that are that are doing this, and they're hungry. I'm talking about hungry, you know. And and it's just it's just a different it's just a different ball game. It's a completely different ball game. And although it's not, you know, it's not about looking at other people and. Uh, you know, our, our society spends so much money on motivation. It's all about motivation, right? That's probably, probably part of the reason I'm here, is to help motivate, right? But, but think about this. What's the, what's the better way to be motivated? Is it to have to look to somebody else, an external source, for motivation, and then therefore that has to continue to change and change. Okay, what's the next? I need another fix. I need to fix. Or how about an internal sense of motivation, where what you're doing is really for you. When I play, I'm not playing for the audience. I'm playing for myself, and it seems like it's it's it seems selfish, right? That seems totally selfish. But you tell me what's more selfish, for me to really play for myself so that it allows me to have peace when I'm playing and not think about things that pollute the art, or for me to play for the gratification of people doing this. You know? You really don't have very many choices with that. I mean, you can either play for yourself and be content, and if other people really dig what you're, what, you, what you're playing, cool. If they don't, you weren't doing it for them anyway. You can either have that kind of approach. Now that doesn't mean that you ignore the audience. That means that you don't care about what the audience thinks. You know? and, and part of that is about this here. I mean, you need to, you need to be willing to listen to people. But you can't do stuff just because other people, that, that's what the accepted thing. That's, that's one of the problems with our, our culture. You know, is, uh, you know, if it's popular, then hey, it must be the greatest thing in the world. You know, I'll never forget it. I was, uh, don't ask me why, I was watching a TRL on MTV, this is years ago. I don't know, I just turned the TV on, it happened to be on that or something. And uh, uh, some some kid, 16 or 17 year old kid, was got the, the privilege to introduce Britney Spears. Okay. And he says, now for the greatest vocalist who's ever lived, the greatest vocalist ever, Britney Spears. <laughs> And when he's saying this, I'm thinking he's going to say something like Patti LaBelle, or he's going to say something like, you know, somebody that can really sing, you know, at least. Britney Spears. So, and in a culture where Britney Spears is the standard, you know, you got to be doing it for something deep. There's got to be a deeper reason for doing it. You know, uh, maybe, and maybe back in the day, uh, maybe, 50 years ago, uh, you could be an artist and you could really be into it, you know, uh, for what it gave you, you know, for for the adulation that you got and for the, you know, for the praise. Uh, maybe you could deal with that. I, I don't really think so, but, but there was enough attention for it. You know, there were enough people that knew that what you were doing was special. You know. It's not really, that's not really the dynamic that is there now. And, it's, and it doesn't mean that there are nobody that knows, there's nobody that knows. 
it means that it's not popular to know. Okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to get dark or anything. <laughs> it's starting to sound dark. But really, uh, you know, all of this, like, for me is about motivation. So when I'm in the practice room, and this is a very personal thing. Every time I touch my instrument, every time I deal with music, period, it is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It's not, uh, I don't do it, I, I play for myself, but I feel that it is my responsibility to cultivate that which, which I've been given, which I am not responsible for, to turn it into something that's presentable. I feel that that's my responsibility. And so it's an act of worship. So when I get in front of people, it's no less an act of worship, but it's not because of the audience. It's because of what I feel is I'm responsible for, what I'm supposed to be developing, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing with, with the gifts I've been given. So maybe the next time you think about love, Think about how much you you really love what it is uh, that you do, the discipline that you've chosen, or maybe the discipline that's chosen you, as in my case. Uh, maybe uh, you'll think about some of these words. Commitment, sac sacrifice perseverance, work, humility, pursuance, discipline. That's all I have. That's all I got for you. Well, I have a question. How did you get involved in academia since you realized when students weren't responding to and in a disciplined way um, your instruction, um, did you pull back from it or did you just continue and were you working at always the college level or did you work in the public schools at all? Okay, well, when I was going to college is when I, is, is when I discovered that I was a teacher. My, motivation, my motivational gift is as a teacher. The way I see things, the way I, all of the details and the goofy facts that nobody pays any attention to, and my motivation for wanting to help somebody, you know, uh, this is one way that you can test this, and one way that I tested myself. I'm not the kind of person that, uh, if I see somebody on the side of the street that's in need, that I just want to give them whatever they need, just so they have it. That's not my motivation. I want to show them something. I want them to improve their situation. I want to give them some information. And so it would be very hard for me to resist saying something to them. Not something mean, but something constructive. It would be very hard for me to resist that. So I'll do something for you, but I need to see that you're taking this and you're going to improve your situation. And here's a way that you can improve your situation. You see, so that was always the case. Uh, but I didn't become more in, in touch with it until I was, until I was, like I said, about 20. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I worked in high school uh, as, a, as a high school band director, uh, actually an orchestra director, uh, for a year and a half, um, right before I took this position. And actually, right before I took this position, I had five jobs. Five jobs. Um, I, uh, of course, I was a musician, you know, so recording, writing music, practicing regularly, uh, regular gigs. Um, uh, that was one. Second job was I was a, I was a, uh, a musical director at a church. Okay, so there's there's a second job. Okay, the third job was I was a part-time band director in one school district, and then the fourth job was I was a full-time band director. I was a full-time orchestra director in another school district. 
ask me how I pulled that off, I don't know. Uh, just found the right situation where I could work the scheduling around it. And uh, and then the fifth thing is I had about, so I had about 50, between 15 and 20 private students. So I was teaching lessons out of my house. So, so I had five jobs, okay? And with the five jobs, I was still able to practice. I was still able to write, write music to do the things that I needed to do to continue to progress and to make contacts, keep my website updated, all of that kind of stuff. You know, um, go to the National Association of Music Merchants conference, a huge uh, conference that happens in California every year. Uh, record with other artists. Um, I, um, you guys know who Bale Fleck is? You know, Fleck comes. Yeah, no. I've seen him multiple times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bale Fleck and Fleck comes. The bass player is uh, Victor Wooten. And uh, Victor Wooten, um, uh, maybe the, regarded it, regarded as, you know, one of the greatest bass players in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I've recorded a couple CDs with him. Um, I mean, I've done, a bu I've done a bunch of stuff, and I'm just doing a lot of stuff during, during that time period. And so you just have to do it. I mean, you don't sleep that much, you don't, there's other stuff you have to give up. But, I mean, if you love it, you do it. I mean, I, I uh, a lot of, I mean, everything that I was doing was related to music. That, that's another concept that is changing. Uh, whereas, uh, back in the day, you could just be, you know, as a musician, you could just, hey, I just want to play my instrument. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to write any music. I'm not going to teach anybody. I'm just going to play music. Well, maybe in the, you know, 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, 1950s I'm talking about, 1940, you know, like that, maybe, maybe back then you could do that. Because, you know, in, in, you know with the, the, in the swing era, there were thousands of big bands that were, tra that were traveling around the country. It was, it was America's popular music. So you could do that. You know, that would be like if I was, uh, I don't know, it would be like if I was in uh, Justin Timberlake's yeah. Well, yeah, but today it would be like being in Justin Timberlake's band or something. I mean, you don't need anything else. All them guys are getting like, you know, 200000 a year and stuff like that. So, so, uh, but, that's, but that's not the case anymore. And, you have uh, basically have kind of three three categories. You have uh, you have musicians that are just are going to have to do this as a hobby. Um, that doesn't mean that it's any less important to them, and doesn't mean that they love it any less. It's just that's what it is. It's it's going to have to be a hobby. You have musicians that hit the long ball, and you know you know people like Fifty Cent and. Um, you know, people like, you know, Jay-Z and, and, and people that are just multi-millionaires, very young, you know, usually they spend it on raw stuff and squander it and they broke again, like MC Hammer or something. But, 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 you know, you have that kind of situation, so you can hit the long ball. That doesn't require any education, right? You don't have to go to school for that. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, listen, especially with those those two examples uh, that, that I gave, Fifty Cent and Jay Z. They hey, they funded their uh, their recording, their first recording, drug money. Hey, you can do that. Slam some dough, get your bread together. You know, there you go. And it's it's really upsetting to me. I saw I saw I was watching a, an interview on uh, Oprah. You know. My wife, she loves Oprah, so I end up watching Oprah sometimes. And um, it was an interview with Jay-Z, and he was talking about the way that he grew up, and he was slinging dope, and blah, 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 and then he's, now he's, he's clean, and he doesn't, he doesn't sling dope now. You know, he's like a billionaire now, right? He doesn't, he doesn't sling dope. And this is supposed to be like a positive story. This is like a good story. Oh, yeah, you know, if you, you know, if you, you know, work hard, then you can be like Jay-Z. Jay-Z funded his stuff. The reason that he's rich is because of slinging dope. That's really the truth about it. I mean, and I'm, and I'm sorry to say this, but that's really the truth. How come we can't, can't hear more of these stories about people that never did wrong stuff? 
They just stuck on the path and did what they were supposed to do the whole time. And then the stuff paid out. That's the kind of story that you know kids need to hear. You know, they don't need to hear these stories about these, you know, uh, athletes uh, that, you know, have multiple uh, uh, women on the side and then therefore lose their endorsements. You know, these aren't the kind of stories that we need to hear. We need to, we, we need to hear stories about people making the right decisions from the job. Um, now, that isn't, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I made plenty of mistakes, plenty of wrong decisions. Okay, so that's that's not what this is that's not what this is about. But what it is about is uh, our values are all wrong. They're they're all wrong. And then, I mean, next time you know Fifty Cent or Jay Z come out with a CD and they're sold out. You know, they come to town, it's packed, and everybody knows the cat got his money from just selling drugs. Everybody knows this, but it doesn't it doesn't prevent any any support at all. Well, I, I just, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, drives me crazy because um, now if you think about that too much, then it'll make, it'll trivialize what it is that you're doing and make you feel like, well, what I'm doing is not worth it. But that's, that's, that's false. It is worth it. It is worth it. And it's worth it for all the real reasons. It's hard to, um, it's hard to be, to, to gain happiness or joy. Um, on the plight of others, or based on the unhappiness of others. Um, and at some point, people that hurt other people and get over by hurting other people, or by using, you know, sideways approaches to get there, they didn't have to be disciplined, they didn't have to bust their butt, you know, on a college budget for way too long. They didn't have to do that. They didn't do that at all, you know. and. Um, now, in the case of you know JC, oh, he grew up in the projects and everything. You know, I I, I, I'm, I feel for people that, that have those kind of situations that grow up in that kind of situation. Guess what? My father grew up in that situation. My father grew up in it. He didn't sell drugs. You know, he. Uh, I mean, if there's a story of pulling your uh, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that's the that's the story right there. I mean, he didn't have anything given to him. They told him that uh, when he was in school, I mean, he was brilliant. My dad's got like 160 IQ or something. I mean, he's, he's, it's off the charts, extremely intelligent. Um, they, told, they told him that he'd be a good brick mason when he was in middle school. Oh, you don't want to take the math classes. You don't want to do this, you know? Um, and he's, my dad never got less than an A on any assignment when he was in college for either degree, not a single assignment. And this is back when you actually had to go to the library to research. You couldn't Google stuff to get information. You had to actually go and bust it in the books. And he had, what, what does he have? Yeah, when he was working on his math, well, I think he had at least two kids when he was working on, I think he might have had four kids at one point. No, I think he had, he had, he had two kids while he was working a full-time job and going to school full-time and never got less than an A. So I don't really have too many excuses I could give him about my cushy living in the dorms, you know, <laughs> existence when I was in school. So, um, but, you know, the, the point is, is that there's those other stories out there of people really doing stuff for the right reasons. And those are the stories that we need to take note of. Um, uh, those are the stories we need to write about. Those are, those are the stories we need to, you know, write compositions about. That we need to express through, you know, through different arts. And uh, as, as opposed to the same old, same old stuff that we see you know, day in and day out. Um, but, uh, so, uh, I was working on those jobs and then I saw the, the announcement for the Ohio State position, uh, which was exactly the kind of position I was looking for. And the rest is history. You know, I took the, I took the job, I think there were 60 applicants, seven finalists, and uh, I, got, you know, I, got the, I got the position. And, uh, so I, I love my job. 
I love what, doing what I'm doing. I have a really strong jazz saxophone studio. I've got good good kids. I don't have any jerks in my studio. I weed that out real fast. <laughs> I must be that. Um, it's a family environment. Everybody's helping everybody. None of the cutthroat stuff that um, people, some, some schools have. Um, a buddy was telling me, that he's a lawyer, he also has a master's degree in music uh, performance, saxophone performance. Uh, but he, he's also a lawyer. And uh, I think he was working like entertainment law or something like that. And uh, he was telling me about his experience at, at uh, the school he went to. I'm not going to out the school. Uh, uh, but he was going to, it was a big test school. Uh, it was U of M. <laughs> if it was you of him, I'd tell him, I would say it was you. <laughs> no, but it wasn't, uh, when you of but it was a Big Ten school. Went to the school, top flight law program, and they would tell you, and he told me that they would tell you, make sure that you don't misplace any of your belongings when you're in the library. Okay, don't leave your laptop somewhere, don't, you know, Leave your your your, uh, your briefcase, nothing like that. Because what people would do, because it's so cutthroat, what people would do if they saw your laptop or they saw your briefcase, they saw an assignment, a paper you had, whatever, they wouldn't turn it in. They wouldn't steal it. They would just throw it right in the garbage. There's places like that. See, I mean, people don't. In, in the Midwest, a lot of times we don't get to see that kind of stuff. But there's places that are like that. But I know I didn't want my studio to be like that. And there's a lot of music studios that tend to be like that. Nobody can get along because everybody feels like they're competing against every, and everybody else. I constantly tell people, look, your competition is between you and yourself. You are the one that has to stand in there and look at yourself and say, either I did what I was supposed to do today to make myself better, just one step at a time, or I didn't. And if you didn't, it's not this person over here's fault. It's your fault. Do you have any um, children? I don't have any children. I don't have any children. Uh, but my wife and I are uh, we're looking to adopt. So that's something that we want to do. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I come from a, a you know medium-sized family. Four, four of us. My younger sister is a doctor. Um, she's a psychiatrist. My older brother is uh, um, he's a systems uh, systems programmer. Uh, he was working for uh, Chase, and I worked for another company. Uh, and then my younger brother, uh, who spent six months in Guantanamo Bay and one year in Iraq, is uh, in the military. But he, he is, he's not, he's, he is, uh, how, do you, how do you say this, he's not active duty right now. So he is, uh, he works at like an industrial painting company. But, um, so, yeah, so I mean, I, and, you know, my parents are still together. You know, this is, uh, it's not, uh, not a totally common situation, unfortunately. Too many of us have experienced that, and I've, and I've been divorced myself, so, um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, uh, we're, 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 we're working on that. I've only been married for two years, so we got some time. <laughs> Any other questions or anything about anything I said? There's a few other words I was wondering might go along with those having to do with uh, risk and trust right. and self-confidence. Yeah, that's a good one, especially the last one, uh, self-confidence. You know, a lot of us become artists, artists um, because we have significant um, insecurity issues. And see, because as a musician, I could, if 
I was doing it for the wrong reasons, that could be what boosted my, my ego, which made me feel better about myself when people clap for me. So then it's like the motivation is to get really good so that people will like you for something. You know, they'll, um, and uh, so it's really, it's really more basic than that. It's like, uh, I think, and, and this, and you see this happen disproportionately with child stars. People that get a dis, you know, an inordinate uh, amount of, of attention when they're very young and they think that's normal so they never adjust or develop correctly you know now to a lesser extent I think that that uh, that can happen uh, with an artist that um, uh, and so you know I'm, 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 I'm constantly looking at myself you know uh, I constantly talk to my students about this um, um, because you can't be a good artist if you're not if you're not adjusted if you're not well adjusted and you can't do it for very long you know you can do it for a short period of time but you can't do it for a long period of time you can't do it for a lifetime that's one of the reasons why disproportionately artists don't live very long especially musicians don't live very long you know um, Charlie Parker you know died in his thirties you know early thirties. You know, uh, John Coltrane died, I think he was 40 years old. You know, these are two of the most important, significant musicians ever. But they went through long periods of time of, of severe drug abuse. And largely because they had never really dealt with some of the insecurity issues. You know. Um, now, I'm going to say something that, you know, I'm not supposed to say. And you're recording it too. <laughs> and I'm recording, right? <laughs> I'm going to say something I'm not supposed to say. Okay, I'm not supposed to say that drugs don't help, or, or, or I'm sorry, that drugs help. I'm not supposed to say that. But the reason that people abuse drugs is because they do help. What they help with is they help a person to quit thinking about all of their issues and just think about the art. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm not supposed to say that, but that's why people abuse drugs. That's why so many people abuse, abuse drugs. I mean, it's not just something stupid and crazy to do. Why would you even do that? It doesn't even make any sense. Look, it is stupid to do, but it at least makes sense why somebody would, would think that that would help. Somebody that has severe insecurity issues or or never really adjusted and needs the adulation and needs the art for their for their sense of security I can I mean it makes sense uh, why abusing drugs would be something natural to do something seemingly natural and normal to do but the new but the good news is is that there's other ways to accomplish the same thing they just take a lot more discipline they take a lot more discipline they're not quick fixes it takes it's a uh, it's a progression it's a progression in its patience and it's taking you know one day at a time one step at a time and 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 being uh, critical of of the things that you see in yourself that you're trying to improve and and day by day systematically working on those things and being open to other people that are telling you stuff it's it's a lot of the stuff that Sometimes artists don't want to hear a lot of criticism about what you know about their art because they see their art as being them. And so, if so, let alone critical stuff about themselves, you know, and and how they need to change things and stuff like that. It's it's you know it's a it's a rough way to go sometimes. Uh, but uh, in in the path that I've, I've I've chosen that uh, has constantly given me stuff to work on and in a, in a systematic approach to work that stuff out is, is my faith. My faith in God, my, uh, my spirituality, you know. 
And that is actually the way. And actually, John Coltrane discovered that towards the end of his life. But the damage had already been done. He died from, a, I think he died from a brain aneurysm, um, from years of abuse. But he had stopped using drugs, he was totally clean. And he had found something that was just as locked in. And if you listen to his music from very early on all the way out, because, you know, they used, to, they used to say this thing about, uh, um, you know, if, if, you don't, if you don't do jump, then you got no soul, you know. They, they used to have this thing. I mean, this is a, like a common thing. Like, if you don't do drugs, then your music sounds like it doesn't have any soul, you know. And if you listen to John Coltrane during the time period where he was abusing drugs, and then the time period, the later time period, when he was not, um, I can honestly say that there's a much higher... Uh, I, I, I can honestly say that there is a, a deeper level of soul and spirit in his later period of music than in the early period. So it's not like he lost something for giving up the drugs. <laughs> you know, that's, that's always funny, you know. And I, do, and I keep busy. I do a lot of stuff. I mean, it, I, I can't just sit still. That's one thing about artists. Like, sometimes we just have, like, all this energy, and we're up at weird hours of the night and stuff, and it's hard to find the right kind of person that understands that, that wants to be with a person that's going to just be doing all this stuff. You know, now some of that is about discipline. I mean, you still got to lay the law down. You still got to be like, okay, right? At night, I still, I just need to stay in bed, okay? <laughs> you, 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 still, you still need to, to be disciplined. So it's not like because you're an artist, you get to just be wild and crazy and stuff. And say, hey, this is just how I express myself. <laughs> um, that's, <laughs> that's not appropriate. Uh, however, <laughs> however, you know, you know, I, I have a lot of energy. Like I just have a lot of energy, and you know, I, I'm an amateur bodybuilder. Um, I um, I play saxophone, flute, clarinet, piano, bass. I write um, music. I tell all my students, and this kind of relates to something I was saying earlier about how. You know, back in the day, you could just do one thing. You say, "I just want to be a performer," you know, or "I just want to be a writer," or "I just want to teach." But it's not—it's it's not the case anymore. Now, what the situation is is, if you're a musician, in order to be a complete musician, and in, in order to ensure uh, that you're going to be able to survive doing this, you have to be a, an exceptional performer, an exceptional writer, and an exceptional teacher. You don't get a choice. You're going to have to do some writing, some performing, and some teaching. Period. Because that, 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 that's that's the only game there is in town. Now, you know. And but the beautiful thing about that is each one builds on each other. It, each one makes the other one better. You know. And um, so and and also, once a performer has gotten to a certain point. Uh, and, and, and I believe that, you know, I'll be able to improve until I die as a performer, just as a performer. Um, if, if that's what I'm trying to deal with. Um, but each, each, um, each, you could run out, of, I mean, I, I, I get bored. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not supposed to say that too. But I get bored easy, you know. And having a lot of things to do and a lot of different pursuits, so long as I have a systematic approach and a disciplined way to pursue those approaches, those things. I mean, it keeps you out of trouble. Just being honest, it keeps me out of trouble. I mean, I'm too busy to get in trouble. I got too much stuff going on. I don't have no time for any foolishness. And uh, one thing that a commitment will do for you is it rules out other options. Rules out, you know, foolishness and getting involved with stuff that you shouldn't be involved with and spend a little bit too much time, a little too late at night over at whoever's house, whatever it is. I mean, it, it, it'll allow you to, to stay on the straight and narrow and say, okay, look, this is what I said I love. This is what my commitment is. Hanging out till 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning over here, that's not helping me get an A on this test tomorrow morning. You know, that's not helping me, you know, to get up in the early, early in the morning and go to the gym like I need to. Or it's not helping, you, you understand what I'm saying? It gives you, uh, it takes away some of the goofy options. 
So commitments are great. I mean, um, some people don't want to make commitments at all. So if I make a commitment, I'll break it. Look, it's better to make a commitment and at least try, you know, than to not try because you think you're going to break your commitment. Okay? That's just part of living. And you have to be willing to make mistakes. If you're not even going to try, then what's the point? I mean, you know, why are we, why are we even sitting in here if you're not going to try? It, doesn't make, it just doesn't make any sense. Why go to school? You know, why not just stay in the bed all day? Take it, take, it, take it to its fullest logical conclusion. You might as well. Just stay in bed, you know, order pizza. Just stand there, you know, might as well. Hey, that's what I'd be doing. I wouldn't be doing anything. If, if I didn't think this stuff was worth anything, I wouldn't do anything. You know, it's gotta be, it's gotta mean something. Any other questions? I don't know if I'm saying the right stuff or, or not. <laughs> Actually, you're getting me to think about some things too, about how about when we're working, so a number of the students are, are looking to be educators, um, working with young kids. Right. And when you're talking about that energy, I kept thinking of this kind of overdiagnosis of kids with ADD. Uh, and you know, is it possible that we're medicating the creative and intellectual curiosity out of kids uh, because they're not easy to manage by educators? Uh, or, or how might we start thinking about redirecting that energy into some passion that they may have? Now, I will say, I, I, I am aware that some of the food that we eat now, uh, because of the need for more food and, and uh, uh, to create more food, you know, they put stuff in, you know, in the animal's food that makes them bigger and, you know, steroids and stuff to make them you know, super chicken and stuff. Um, I, I am aware that that happens, and, and we don't know yet exactly how that has actually affected um, kids, you know, in later generations and stuff like that, you know, past the time they started doing that. We don't know exactly. Um, heck, I might be bigger than I'm supposed to be because I ate some too much KFC or something. I don't know. But, but as far as is this overdiagnosis of ADD and ADHD and all that kind of thing. Look, people always had issues from the beginning of time. And back in the day, they just dealt with it. You know? Um, I mean, I have a student that has ADD. And I, uh, I mean, I understand that sometimes, you know, you have to, I have to be sensitive or whatever about certain things. But I'm hard on him. Because everybody else is going to be hard on him. It's not like he's going to have it easier, you know, later. So, so uh, my approach is always has, has always been different. Like with dealing with kids, as opposed to patty caking the kids and you know talking down to them and you know, oh well, I don't use that big word. They might not know what that means. And as opposed to doing that, I give it full on. And if I say stuff that they don't understand, I test them too. If I say stuff that they don't understand, then they ask. And guess what? Now they know what it means. So now the next time that somebody says something, they'll know, it, know what's going on. You know, it won't be naive. But I, I do think I do think that um, you know all the all the medications probably uh, yeah is probably not good. I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you that for sure. I mean, my sister's a psychiatrist, and I slept in a, in a uh, uh, what was it, a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> but uh, no, anyhow, uh, <laughs> but I'm not no expert on that. No. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be here, and um, sure. I, I, you got me thinking about a number of things, and actually some things that I'll talk to the students about that you don't have to be here for, including one of the, the, the links that I sent you on Nick Cave, uh, who's the, not the musician Nick Cave, but Nick Cave, the 
um, sculptor and fashion, she's head of the fashion department of the School of the Art Institute that had the video with uh, the sound suits. And he's doing a lot of collaborative things now on the West Coast. He's got a touring exhibit. Um, this is a man that pulled himself up by his bootstraps, too. I mean, he's one of the most. He's also a, a bodybuilder, African American, works a lot of. I mean, his stuff is really rich historically if you look at all the kinds of references. But this man never sleeps. I mean, he doesn't get up and run, but I mean, he's in his studio at least 14 hours a day and has six to 12 students and interns that are working with him. So, and, and his, all of his stuff sells out at every open. He, in fact, his problem is holding on to work long enough to be able to have traveling shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, I've been following his career since he just got out of school and just watching the kind of real focus that he had on kind of where he was going to position himself. That it wasn't a kind of immediate rise, but now when he gets you know multiple pages in the New York Times on his review, overnight success. Yeah, overnight success that uh, I've been following since 1991. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, yeah. it's an overnight success that took 30 years. You know why that, that works? Let me draw this thing up here. This is why this works. This way. Uh, that overnight success is because this dotted line, that represents where the general public actually see you. Okay? But most of our work is down here. So we've been doing this for 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is, like this. And then as soon as you get right there, <laughs> as soon as you get right there, that's when people notice. That's when you know the general public starts to notice. And so then it's an overnight success. You know, because they don't see any of this. They don't even know any of this stuff. Well, you know, where was this guy before? Where was he 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I never, I never heard of this. That's right, because you weren't paying attention. You weren't paying attention to, you know, the, the you know major media outlets, which is which is a big problem right now, because the major media outlets are, you know, look, the the the, uh, the, the media is a for-profit industry. It's a for-profit industry. They're not paid to give you the truth. They're paid to give you what. Well, uh, what gives the ratings and what their advertisers are that's for. that's right that is what they give us and so they're not they're not interested in uh, the kind of sophisticated and you know earth-changing you know and, and uh, uh, life-changing type of art that we're talking about they're not interested in that because it doesn't make any money from their perspective they can't get any money from it yeah. <laughs> All right, that's my last words. <laughs> yes.